Good morning. This is not on my ear very well either. They all have different head shapes. And there we go. Well, again, welcome to One Life Community Church. Uh, we say this all the time, like every week, multiple times, but it's always true. It's a joy and a privilege uh, to be with you all each week. And uh, for me, especially in this different role, um, kind of pulling double duty of playing and preaching today. Um, but I always love worshiping with you uh, in this way. My name is Brian. I'm the worship director, uh, if you don't know who I am. Um, so there. We are in the midst of our Lenten season uh, in this, this series that we've called the Jesus Table. Uh, over the season of Lent, we've been looking at the ways that the table has been this integral element of the ministry of Jesus in the early church and how that can be a helpful framework for how we think about what we're doing as the church and who we are as the church today. And just to kind of help frame things as we get started, uh, if you've been here for the season, like during the season of Lent over the past several years, uh, you might remember that we, we talk about Lent as sort of this springtime, uh, a season where we sort of take stock of ourselves and how we live both individually and collectively uh, with the hope and the intention of birthing something new, of bringing a new way of seeing and moving in the world to life. And our hope and our aim with this series is that something new might come out of us, both on an individual, personal level, but also on a corporate level uh, that changes, or better yet, expands our vision and our understanding of what it means to be this unique expression of Christ's body that is One Life Community Church. We hope that as, as we look at the centrality of the table to Jesus' mission and the early church, we can begin to open ourselves up to the ways that the Spirit is present and active as we meet each other in these unique and vulnerable places. So, a few weeks ago, Ben introduced us to the series with a look at the role of the table and eating in both the scriptures and like our basic humanness. Uh, he talked about our hunger and the need to eat are some of the most basic elements of our humanity and how meeting around the table is this sort of leveling act. Uh, it's a place where our shared humanity is very clearly seen. Two weeks ago, Greg shared about the table as a place where all are welcome, uh, both betrayers and righteous, both those who follow Jesus and those who try to destroy him, and how we are all of these things together, and yet Jesus welcomes us. Uh, and then last week, Rich invited us to imagine ourselves in the host's seat to look around and notice who is and is not here. He reminded us that the table is a manifestation of Christ's mission in the world. And that to be invited to the table is to be called to sit with Jesus. And he encouraged us to pursue God's desire to invite the outcasts to the table and to recognize that we ourselves are spiritual outcasts. And in many ways, where we go today might feel like a bit of kind of revisiting uh, and, and remembering these previous weeks. Uh, but at the same time, I hope that we can move further into what God is doing and inviting us to participate in. Uh, so with that in mind, and before we go any further, let's pray. God, be with us this morning. Be with us every day. Be with us in this moment and all moments. Attune us to you. Turn our faces, our hearts, our minds, our souls to you our personhood to you, our community to you. Help us to hear what you are calling us into. 
Help us to hear the invitation to join you in the work that you are doing in this world. Thank you that you are here. That you have called us and you are calling us and you are calling all things, all creation back to you. I pray this in your name, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, so, I want to take us back to the first week of Lent, when Ben was introducing us to this series and the concept of the table as a centerpiece in the way the early church practiced their faith. The primary element of their gathered worship in the collective life of the church following Jesus. Table gatherings served as places where the church acted as the church, where conversation, teaching, Singing, because yes, they sang. Prayer and communion all took place. Many of Jesus' significant and important interactions with people took place around the table, including, as we'll see in our texts today. We have quite a bit of text to look at, three passages uh, that we'll touch on throughout this portion of our worship together, and, and each touching at different angles of Jesus meeting people at the table. And so as we engage these texts, there's an overarching theme that we can see, and it's one that we've talked about throughout this whole series, that all are welcome at the table. Everyone. Every single person is welcome. And that's something that seems so obvious, right? But it's incredibly hard to practice, too. So, like, with all that in mind and kind of just thrown at you, let's look at these texts. And as we do, um, I'd actually like you to pay less attention to what the lessons are that you can glean from these stories uh, and pay more attention to the characters that are present, uh, to who is at the table. Our first text is this brief little nugget uh, from early on in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, it's Luke chapter 5, verse 27 through 32. Uh, quick background is that Jesus is in the midst of calling his followers and beginning his public ministry. Uh, and, the, and the verses will be behind me on the screen. Uh, and you can follow along in your Bibles if you would like to. So let's read. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi gave a great banquet for him in his house, and there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others sitting at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with these tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. So who is present in this story? What characters do we encounter? I'm actually asking that. <laughs> Say that again. Tax collectors. Jesus, Levi. Pharisees and scribes. I can't hear anything anymore. I think we got it all. <laughs> Levi, the tax collector. Jesus. Pharisees. Jesus' disciples and other sinners and general riffraff. <laughs> Actually, Jesus kind of standard cast, right? Uh, especially in Luke's gospel. Like, we see this, this sort of, like, type of crowd around him. Like, you got, like, the religious righteous and then the, everybody else who they don't like. <laughs> and then Jesus in the middle. Uh, and we see this especially in Luke's gospel. Luke is often considered the gospel of the marginalized, the outcasts, the downtrodden, the powerless. Uh, those that are not among the privileged and the powerful in society. Luke's gospel is the gospel of the disenfranchised, 
We see this all over the book. Jesus sides with the poor, with the sick, with the underprivileged. He's followed by women and by people who weren't good enough to make it as the elite religious class, by violent zealots, by all kinds of people who are in the lower or the fringy parts of society. Jesus sides with the outsiders. This is what certain streams of the church call God's preferential option for the poor. That's the belief that God is found primarily among the poor and in the slums and the streets and among the oppressed and the downtrodden. This is the world that God aligns God's self with, that God walks into. God became a human being in the person of Jesus Christ. A poor Palestinian who was at one point a refugee, part of a people group who were at best tolerated but generally treated like garbage. God walks alongside those who need help the most in order that we can hear Jesus' call to join him with them. And to come along those, alongside those who are considered less than in society. And so that's where we find Jesus here, like around the table, feasting with the gluttons and the drunks and the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Uh, we see this demonstrated in Jesus' call to Levi. Levi's a tax collector and nobody likes those people especially in the first century. They were liars, they were swindlers, and they were thieves. And Jesus specifically calls this dude to follow him, so, that, so then they have a big party with a huge crowd around the table. It's almost exactly like Greg's challenge to us from a couple weeks ago to have dinner with someone that we don't like, someone who kind of bugs us, and then if it turned into a party. Uh, and the Pharisees and the scribes didn't like this. These guys are the religious elite, the ones who sort of set the rules of religiosity for the Jewish people. And they function as a kind of foil for Jesus and the Gospels. The Gospel writers are using the religious elite as counterpoints to Jesus to illustrate his teachings and his way of being. So for them, a renowned teacher, this upstart rabbi, having a party with these, these tax collectors and prostitutes and swindlers and, and thieves and liars uh, and, and drunk people, like these are, these, these are, this is certainly caused with some pearl clutching among the Pharisees and the scribes. The Pharisees figure prominently in all three of the texts we're looking at today, and we'll, we'll come back to that later on. Um, but for right now, I'll say that they matter in these stories. They are there. They are part of who's around the table. So quickly, let's look at the other two texts. Uh, the first is a couple chapters after the first one. It's Luke seven thirty-six through 49. And again, you can follow along in your Bibles, and it'll be behind me on the screen as soon as I tap the thing, uh, if you want to follow along there. So let's read one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she's a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. It was a lot of money. Uh, now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I hope the one who, whom, blah, 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 I hope the one, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she's bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. 
You did not anoint my hood with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. These are all signs of hospitality and welcome. Um, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Where are we? Uh, and then he said to the woman, Mr. Verse, and he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. So that's that, that section. And then the second text is Luke 15, and all of it, and I'm not going to read it because it's super long. Um, and for what we're talking about today, we really have a few verses that we're going to focus on. So there's a scene that's set, and we'll read those introdu- introductory verses, and then Jesus tells a few stories, which I'll briefly summarize. Uh, so here we go. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus responds by telling three stories. Uh, and the first, he basically says, If you're a shepherd with a hundred sheep and you lose one, of course you're going to leave the other ninety-nine to go find the other one. Then you'd have a party to celebrate finding the sheep. And then in the second story, he tells of a woman losing one of her ten silver coins, uh, which is a day's pay. Uh, basically, like you imagine losing like one day's pay out of your ten days' work week. That'd be terrible. Uh, So she basically tears her house up, searches all her pockets, digs through her car, backtracks her steps until she finds it. Then she invites her friends over to have a party to celebrate finding that lost coin. And the third story is the story of the prodigal son. A rich kid demands his inheritance uh, and then goes and blows it all on partying, uh, only to find himself broke and so hungry that he gets a job feeding pigs and, like, kind of considers and debates eating the pig food because he's that hungry. Uh, So he heads home, and his dad embarrasses himself and then throws a huge party. Uh, And his other kid doesn't like that, but the dad reminds him that he's always been there, whereas his brother was gone and come home, and that is worth celebrating. It is not unreasonable, not a stretch of the imagination, to say that Jesus leans towards the ones on the margins in these passages. Uh, He identifies with them. He... uh, He brings the lost home, the ones who have walked away or who are struggling. It's almost as if the baseline, if that's the baseline to which those he interacts with are compared to. But I want to notice something here. All three of our texts take place around a table. And all three of our stories include people on the margins, but all three stories also include the Pharisees, the religious elite, those who are on the inside who got it a little more right. They are at the table, too. If you remember, we said that the table is this leveling space where everyone is on the same plane of shared humanity. We all need to eat. Both the marginalized and the elite meet Jesus in this shared space around the table. I want to push a little bit deeper into the significance of the table because it's not just a piece of furniture or even really a symbol for gathering. Although it is those things, meals, eating together. That wasn't just something they did in the first century in the biblical times because it was a nice thing to do or because they were hospitable, although those things were true and and important in their culture. Uh, In Jesus' day, the table, eating together, was an integral part of family life, which was in turn an integral part of society. Context matters immensely in order to understand the scriptures. And Jesus was a first century Palestinian man who lived in a world that was occupied by Rome and heavily influenced by Greek culture. The New Testament was written in this context, and the infancy of the church occurred here. So for citizens and residents of the Roman Empire in the first century, family was everything. 
But when I say family, I'm not talking about like the two parents and the two and a half kids and the dog, the idealized nuclear family of the 1950s that we kind of have in America. Uh, the family in the first century was a bit bigger and less isolated, uh, less individualistic. The family included a man who was considered the head, the wife who actually made things work, including running the businesses and the day-to-day -day affairs of the house, any children, any unmarried relatives, business associates who were interacting with the family businesses, tenants, whether they lived there or they rented, rented business space from, the, from the, the, the family, and even the slaves and the poor who happened to be hanging around outside the house. That was what was included as family in the first century. It's a lot of people crossing paths and sharing life together, and not in isolation. And so to have your family in order, uh, to like have everything functioning well, uh, was how you accrued honor and social status and how you contributed to the empire. To serve Caesar well meant to have your family in order. Your family existed to serve and benefit the state. Uh, the good citizens had their houses in order. The table was absolutely central to family life. This family gathered regularly around the table and how you gathered and where you sat spoke volumes. Uh, business was done around the table, and family life placed immense value on these gathered meals. Uh, really quickly, and we've talked about this in the past, but it's worth revisiting. A typical first century household, uh, the heads and the guests of honor had seats where you could see everyone and interact with everyone. And then as you sort of moved down the food chain, you got away from that center point. Uh, with kids and unmarried relatives kind of being further out, and then the slaves and the poor actually being on the fringes and maybe even out of the room a little bit. The image that comes to mind for me when I was looking into this is this. So aside from me and my wife Amy and my brother and his wife, uh, a very small handful of others, my entire family lives within a couple hours of each other in New England. Uh, so holidays were big ordeals. Our Thanksgiving dinners often had between 25 and 30 people present. Uh, and so after several years of trying to make that work with like small tables. My grandfather built this gigantic table, uh, probably from like the end of that row towards maybe like two chairs in here, huge, that like broke down and you could shove it up in your attic somewhere when you weren't using it. Um, but it was enormous. And since we hosted the meal at our house, my dad would sit at the end, the head of the table. Uh, so picture this room, this table like butted up against the wall on one end and then comes pretty much out into the staircase in the other. Um, and then you shove as many people as you can into that room. My dad sat at the end, uh, and then my mom next to him, and then my grandparents, and any guests that uh, we happen to bring along, and the aunts and uncles, and then all the kids uh, were shoved down the end where our elbows were on each other's plates, and we had to climb over everybody else to get more stuffing or go to the bathroom. Um, and honestly, like, we haven't been back since we had our own kids, so I have no idea how this would work now. Like, who gets to be shoved way down in the end? Uh, but that's sort of the idea. The higher up the hierarchy you were, the better seat you got. And the table in Jesus' time was a very hierarchical arrangement, one that communicated each person's place and role in the family, and you didn't mess with that. The table was the space where the whole family was expected to gather and be together. And it was this exact setting where the early church gained its footing and began worshiping together. The agape feast, the liturgy, and the Eucharist all took place around the same table, just like a family. Except things were a little different. The early church didn't necessarily do away with the hierarchical structures and didn't try to overturn, like overtly overturn the social norms, uh, but they did try to subvert them. 
They took the social norms and tried to expand the boundaries or redefine the rules. And because around this table, all were equal. Slaves were on the same level as their masters. They were still slaves and they were still masters, but they were considered around the table on the same level. Women and men were elevated to the same level. Foreigners were welcomed as family, and the poor shared honored spots next to the wealthy. And they did this because this is what Jesus did. When Jesus ate with the marginalized, he elevated them to positions of honor. He dignified them in ways that they probably hadn't ever known. The last were first, and the first were last. That's the way of Jesus, right? Philippians 2 talks about Jesus becoming a human being like this. It says, Jesus, who thought he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but, something, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, humbled himself. Humbled himself? Where did the H go? And became obedient to the point of death, and even death on a cross. God became one of us. The first became last. The early church got this, eventually, mostly, kind of, sort of. And used their time around the table to undermine a social order that said that some were worth more or less than others. And that all were there to serve Caesar, because Caesar is Lord. And in the practice of inverting the power structures and expanding and redefining who's considered family, the early church embodied Jesus. They were his body after he ascended to heaven. And in that family, Jesus is the head. Jesus is Lord. Are you following with me? Like, does this make sense? The table is this like subvertive way of moving everybody towards a level playing field. I want to come back to the Pharisees because they're at the table with Jesus in these stories that we read. We often talk of the Pharisees as these arrogant, controlling elitists who are more concerned with outward appearances and following rules than they were with actually loving God. But I want to ask us if we can look at them as real people. Like, they're presented in a particular way in the scriptures. Like, the authors wrote them this way to interact with Jesus and to kind of be compared with Jesus. But can we remember that these were humans? These were people. Can we look with curiosity and maybe see if we can understand why the way they lived was important to them? The Pharisees knew their, their scriptures inside out. They knew their Bible. They were incredibly well-versed in the scriptures and studied intensely. And they did this because that's how they were coping with being occupied with Rome, by Rome. They figured out that Rome would leave them alone to study the scriptures if they kept their religion out of politics. They didn't want to cause trouble or rock the boat. They wanted to avoid conflict with the state and keep faith private because that's the only way that they could imagine being faithful to God without having to live in fear for their lives. It's just that Jesus, like the kingdom of God, has other things in mind. That's why Jesus was so at odds with them. They, presented a, they represented a private piety that had no cost. But the kingdom of God is both here and now and coming. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. The kingdom of God is this new social order, one that turns the old power structures and ways of thinking on their heads. It says that the last are first, and the first are last, and that family is bigger than you might think, and that all are welcome. The poor and the wealthy, all genders, all races, and even Pharisees, they're at the table too.
The table is a leveling field. The invitation to join Jesus, the invitation of Jesus to join at the table is a communal invitation. You are invited to sit because you matter. Because all of your aches and wounds and longings and hopes have a seat at the table with Jesus. And we are invited to sit because we have much to learn and much to teach, much to give and much to receive. We meet Jesus when we encounter others in all our brokenness and all our glory. It seems like the Pharisees struggled to guess this because they thought they had it right. We do this all the time, and I think it has to do a lot with the shame of who we are. Um, of who we think we are. We hide behind what we think we know because we're afraid of being vulnerable, exposed as imposters. So when we approach another person as like, I have something to give to you, I wonder if we do it because we, that, that's like safe, like we're never exposed and can't really meet people and really share Jesus. That phrase, sharing Jesus. I have personally grown up understanding that phrase in the sense of Jesus really being a commodity. I have Jesus, and I'm going to share some of him with you, like a kid sharing a favorite toy. What if sharing Jesus was more like an embodied and experienced act? Like a trip you go on with your family, or a movie you watch with friends, you share those things. What if sharing Jesus is like that? What if all we can do is meet another person around the table and encounter Jesus together in all of our shared humanity? In the broken, the messy, the ashamed, the hiding, and the lovely, and the creative, and the beauty-making, and the glorious, image-bearing human beings that we all are. What if that is where Jesus has found? What if we're saved in the community? We all need Jesus. That's really the center of this whole thing. We all need Jesus. The poor, the marginalized, the loathed, the slaves need Jesus. Likewise, the wealthy, the landowners, and the slaveholders, Caesar himself and even the Pharisees need Jesus. And they are all invited to the table with him because all are welcome. We are all welcome. At least that's what we say. Actually, embodying that is a bit trickier because it's costly. Jesus often finds himself at odds with his own, like, biological family. Uh, They think he is out of his mind. And uh, I think that's because the gospel writers wanted their readers to know that they weren't alone in risking losing their own biological families when they followed Jesus. Like, the... So, like, the Gospels were being written at the same time that the epistles were being circulated. So, like, all Paul's letters are being circulated. And Paul's talking about things and, like, all these family structures and whatnot. And people are choosing to follow Jesus and losing their own biological families. And the, as the Gospels are being written, I wonder if these people, in their, in their care for their readers, wanted them to know that they were not alone, that God suffered with them. But they also wanted the readers to know that when they did follow Jesus, they were invited into the expansive, capacious family of God. The boundaries get blown open. All are welcome. It's uncomfortable to interact with people who are different than you. But I want, you to, encourage, I want to encourage you to try it. To step out and look for Jesus with someone who is not like you. Not to hide behind thinking we have a commodity to give, 
not to think that we've got it right or that we have special knowledge of being a part in part or not to think that we're responsible for saving someone else or talking the gospel at them but to really encounter Jesus together to be converted to follow Jesus together we are all welcome at the table and we all need Jesus let's find him together At this point, I feel like I've dug up more questions than we started with. At least that's kind of what I hope I did. Um, the worship team can head back up as we close, and I struggled a bit with questions for this. Uh, so I'll ask these. The first one is to look around and notice who's missing. It's kind of similar to the question that we had last week. Look around and notice who's missing and who is here. One of the most beautiful things about the church worldwide a historical early church to now, is that when we say we're all welcome, that implies a diverse community. So I'll ask again, who is here and who is missing? And then, what did you hear? What was stirred in you? What is moving in you? What disrupted you? What, what is, is, is turning over in your minds and in your bodies? What did you hear? And then lastly, what are you going to do now? I'll pray, and the worship team will give you some time to interact with these and reflect a bit. And then they'll lead us in one more song. So let's pray. God, thank you for questions. Thank you for uh, community. Thank you for uh, thank you for being able to to pursue you uh, with each other. Give us humility. Uh, give us vulnerability. Give us courage uh, to risk actually seeing another person. Amen.